glad you asked. Why didn't Joseph and Mary obey the government and leave little baby Jesus here to get butchered? That's an obvious, there's a conflict there between what they're preaching and what Jesus' parents did, isn't there? It sure is. <laughs> sure is. I'm going with Jesus, and I'm going with his people, especially his mother and daddy. Amen. To the you know? Amen. And, you know, you asked the question rhetorically, you know, after explaining a couple of things there. All I can say is go back to chapter uh, 19 of Isaiah, uh, verses 11 to 14. And that's what we went over last week. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. The counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh is become brutish. How say you unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. Where are they? Where are thy wise men? And let them tell thee now, and let them know what Yahweh of hosts has purposed on Egypt. The princes of Zoan are become fools. The princes of Naf are deceived. They have also seduced Egypt. Even they that are the stay of the tribes thereof. Yahweh has mingled a perverse spirit in the midst thereof, and they have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Is this not America and Europe? Where are the sons of the ancient wise? Um, our people are dumbfounded as our leaders are going from bad to worse. There is, there is error in every work. Everything they do is more error. Every law they write is more error. Every diversity, inclusion, equity that they promote and pass and shove at us is more error. Error upon error upon error after error after error. You know, uh, I found myself asking myself, what did they do to my generation? What what was hidden in our vaccines? It's clear to me the medical community is not concerned with life or improving life. You know, what was on the little sugar tablets? The little sugar tablets aren't healthy. What was in that stuff? Absolutely. You and I both know we have many, many people our age that have passed because of cancer. Yep. And various other things. And uh, the phrase now where I live, when you 
take somebody over 60 to the hospital, their script is, wow, we don't know how you made it here. Are you a believer? Are you a believer? Oh, yeah. We can see that your prayers were answered. We're going to rush you immediately to surgery. And the guys are going, what? What? Oh, it's blocked. It's just there's just a trickle of blood getting to you. And of course they say, Well cut me open. Rotoroot me. And then they come out and say, Well, I got two stents. Can you imagine sticking one of those Chinese finger trick bills in your vein of your heart? Uh and they're telling them, well, that ought to be good for nine more years. Whew. Because they put a Chinese finger trick in your vein. I know that's a little simplified, but that's how it's been explained well, to me. Yep, and and <laughs> in nine more years, if you don't do something about changing that thing, it's going to shift in the blood vessel. and. Out yep. goes the lights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe they but don't even shift in the blood vessel. Maybe maybe they just close up. You know, you have smoke detectors now that um, in in seven years they'll just start beeping, no matter if you put a new battery in it or not. Mm-hmm. But how am I supposed to trust uh, m- these men in flight? Well, they've lied to us. Uh, yes, they have, and to trust them is I would not. I mean, we've had that conversation in our family. Unless I'm so broken up in the in the wreck or whatever the situation mm-hmm. is, um, and and there's a fair amount of confidence that I can be put together. I guess um, uh, that's one thing, but. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, to you know, entrust uh, you know, and 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 they've done it over and over. I mean, my father was was that same individual. We heard that dad was being rushed off to a hospital. All right, saddle up the car and get ready to go. Find out that yeah, you're blocked. Just what you said, Russell. And boy, it's. it's it's straight off to surgery we haven't got but a few hours to spare here we're gonna Mm -hmm. we're gonna get this done for you i get there and i say you know you can do lots of things you don't have to do this well they said if i want to sit in a wheelchair the rest of my life well wait a minute that's not you you're going to have a period of healing that you're going to have to do with getting whatever blockage and so forth you got going on cleared out and there are abundance of natural things that you can do that with well you know the cast has been set the die has been rolled and the fear has been placed and the medical uh, people are in position around uh, to say this is this is you know this is this is routine stuff for us. Nothing to worry about here. It's all fine. You know, we do this all the time. And 
you know, this is going to give you the new lease on life. Okay. So w what's the person trying to bring some common sense and to slow the motion down got, got left to, to do absolutely nothing except keep it all in prayer. So that's what you do. And then they tell them, well, you're going to be on rat poison for the rest of your life. And don't take any, uh, eat any of this green stuff that you like. My dad loves kale and asparagus and spinach, anything green he couldn't get enough of. And uh, I said, you know, you don't, he, he's saying that you, you, if you eat it, I got to know how much you're eating because I've got to adjust this blood thinner here because you're your nutrients and your greens are going to mess with what I've got here and I'm going to need to know about it. And, you know, when you've got a medical person in your, in your family, <laughs> you might as well be kicking against the pricks because, uh, they've already, they've already weren't earned their wings. So your voice is nothing. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's an amazing thing when you look at all that's uh, unfolding all over the world. It looks to me like we're we're experiencing much of what Isaiah eleven fourteen says. Yahweh's mixed a perverse spirit, causing them to err in every work. And um, that's why we keep informing others. We keep all of it in prayer that he recognizes and knows that we're there with a voice of understanding, acknowledgement of him, our continued effort to abide in his will as much as is humanly possible under the circumstances and the criteria dealt us. Um, with the the tears amongst us and um these systems have to fail um because there's no salvation in these systems these systems are designed oppressors and they they always have been. So where do you yeah. go from here? Well, we go to part 12. We were in um, 19, as I say, and got through 11 to, 11 to 18, basically, which I just referred to a little bit. And I'm going to pick it up with 18 to 25 and and bring some thoughts regarding those closing verses of chapter 19 and as as i say as a recap somewhat of last week i got two emails one from steve and one from james brother james and uh steve said fantastic uh, unbelievable many things uh that i had not considered in your isaiah series so he's talking about more than just one 
And James had another one that was uh, quite simple, but more pertinent to part 11, uh, if I understand it right. Um, he says, oh my, part 11 is an eye-opener. Eye they are all really good and deliver new and wonderful content I never would have seen. So glad to hear some news about Rich. And just wanted to say that last week I actually failed to mention that R Rich did tell me to be sure and tell all of you. He said, say hello to the crew. And so I consider you folks are the crew. And so, you know, he's, he's fighting it, giving it the good fight and trusting that God has got a plan in all of this. And they're working with what they know and are inspired to do. And we're just, uh, he's just pushing forward and, and keeping strength as much as he can. He's, He's down by the end of the day, which is why he's not show, sharing uh, sharing in the fellowships. Um, I it was about six thirty his time, and and he told me he's got about you know he was he was about to go lay down at that time. So he's not out of the woods, and he needs continued prayer. And I just ask that everybody keep that in your prayers, but. Here in 19, uh, verses 18 to 25, it says, um, let's see, am I in 18 or? Uh, I think that this is. I think I'm in the right one, 17. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking if I've flipped over a page in my notes here from where we left off. Just give me a moment here. I thought I had that already, but now I'm second guessing something here. All right, 19. Um, 1919. In that day shall there be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. It shall be for a sign and for a witness unto Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they shall cry unto Yahweh because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. And Yahweh shall be and Yahweh shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know Yahweh in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation, yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. And Yahweh shall smite Egypt, he shall smite it and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord. And he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land whom Yahweh, Lord of hosts, shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Well, most definitely, this conveys a day sometime future. But one thing that I wanted to point out here 
where it speaks about the language of Canaan, the language of Canaan is Hebrew. Remember, it was the Hebrews that were instructed by God to take those lands of Canaan. So if the language of Canaan is going to be the language of, of uh, Egypt, it must be Hebrew. And a number of Judahites would, after the Babylonian captivity, return and occupy in Egypt. The idea that Isaiah is intimating what a lot of the commentators convey is that there is a great conversion being done in Egypt, a great awakening, if you will, a, a, a conversion of Egypt in the sense that they most view it as is not entirely biblical. Remember that Hebrews 8 8 says, that there was a new covenant being established with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And Hebrews 8.8 has nothing to do with conversion. And so neither does it appear biblical as it pertains to Egypt. So what's actually going on? There was a substantial influx into this land it appears this prophecy conveys that there's going to be a number of cities that are going to take root and because of that there was an influx of judahites especially to the eastern delta and remember it that it was egypt who already had experienced several hundred years earlier the god of jacob's divine intervention with his people in that land so there was a delivering especially as i say to the eastern delta a substantial number of jacob israelites before and up to and including after this time of Isaiah. Alexandria, the city, is one of those cities of five cities that are mentioned that might come to your mind. This was a location which Josephus indicates they were encouraged to settle. And Philo records it comprised a million souls. It's often forgotten by Christians. Alexandria was one of the first who readily received the news of the Messiah. It was the second leading city of the world. So I didn't spend a lot of time on the five cities to try to identify them because I didn't really feel that it was all that relative to the study of Isaiah per se in this bird's eye view, if you will, that we're trying to engage in. And so, but one of those cities, clearly Alexandria, 
And it seems most apparent from the context that Isaiah is envisioning at least this part of chapter 19 to that day of the end of the captivity. As many Israelites and Judahites remained in the Euphrates Valley, the Mitzrayim, the Greek, um, and uh, uh, Babylonian areas. And in fact, the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament was done there. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 44. And I'm going to read a few verses here at the end of the chapter in Jeremiah 44. Uh, I'm at 28. Yet a small number that escaped the sword shall return out of the land of Egypt into the land of Judah. Yet a small number that escaped the sword shall return out of the land of Egypt into the land of Judah. And all the remnant of Judah that are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall know whose word shall stand, mine or theirs. And this shall be a sign unto you, says Yahweh, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words shall utterly stand against you for evil. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I give Pharaoh, king of Egypt, um, my King James says, Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of them that seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy, and that sought his life. So, it's a little different understanding when you're looking at the kingdom and you have a, a kingdom's understanding and view of the biblical record and you're always looking to what it is that is being done in the kingdom of his creation now as for the sign in the midst of egypt there's been a lot of speculation that that sign has to do with many different things um And I couldn't find really anything that I could put my finger on other than the biblical record. It, it seems likely that it would be Jeremiah being brought to Egypt and where these Judahites in Egypt would have the scriptures open to them via even the Greek Septuagint. We know that Alexander the Great was God's tool, and by God's will, he was a great deliverer of their bonds under Persia. They were under extreme bonds with Persia, and Alexander treated them with great compassion and goodwill and built Alexandria as a capital of his dominion. This became a key place a sign, if you will, 
of the spreading of the gospel of Christ some 500 years, half a millennium later. And it was widely received by these so-called, quote, Egyptians. But they were geographically Judahites and Israelites that we just read. God said, we're going to return out of Egypt. And so I believe biblically that the sign that is being set up is this sign right here. Jeremiah was forced to go to Egypt. He counseled according to the word of God that they were to not go into Egypt. And so read chapters 42 to 45 sometime in Jeremiah when you have some time and you'll get a better sense of this. We're not going to have time simply to be able to do that. But um, so it appears to me the biblical record is, is this was that great sign. So you can take it for what it's worth, but I believe it's worth a whole lot more than I'm not tooting a horn than what you'll find in a lot of this. Uh, you know, commentary that they've got to try to force this. In fact, some of them even flat out say this was the beginning of conversion of Egypt, but the biblical record never once says anything about converting anybody to anything, especially somebody besides God's people, if you follow what I mean. And so um, this became a key place, I believe, of the spreading of the gospel. And, I, I, and, and I'm going to tell you why here, I think, in a little bit. Um, I'll try to remember to make a point of noting it for you. But in verses 23 to 25, he says, in that day, this highway. All right. Is that literal or is that figurative? In fact. One could actually say it's figuratively literal. Let me say that again. Is it literal or figurative? Or could one say that it's figuratively literal? As I said, a number of the ten tribes were now among the upper Mesopotamia and media regions. Josephus also tells us many Judahites remained in Babylon. Thus, Yahweh says, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Three regions of captives of Jacob, Israel. Jacob, Israel is to be a blessing in the midst of the land. This is the sign. This is the pillar. This is once again the big picture as God continued to bless and punish according to his will, Jacob Israel. In this process, he continued 
by more convincing proofs of his divine interposition in the affairs of men. And in that process, these areas, Mesopotamian area, area of Assyria, the Babylonian region, the Medes and Persians, all were brought into subjection under the divine will of God. My people, the work of my hands, mine inheritance, are unequivocally applied to Jacob Israel. And there can be no doubt Egypt had some long-term awareness, even though centuries had passed. Long-term awareness of Israel's God as both Israel and Judah at various times throughout this historical period looked to Egypt by obvious alliances to assist them from time to time. And that's all throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles. The underlying evidence is their neglect of their true help, that being God himself, instead choosing to rely on men in the processes of time and under the events of the day and the bands of you know, people moving around, trying to conquer and take territory and so forth. And so now that puts us at chapter 20. As a precursor to getting into the first several verses, archaeological findings of Shennacherib's annals recorded that he, quote, fought with the kings of Egypt accompanying their overthrow, captured alive charioteers and sons of the king, end quote. So we have that in the historical archaeological findings, proving accuracy of Isaiah's prophecies and certain other books of Kings and Chronicles. Second Kings chapter 17 and chapter 18 would be your historical context. Let's read 1 through 6 of chapter 20. In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon the king of Assyria sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time spake Yahweh by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And Yahweh said, Like as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians' prisoners and the Ethiopians' captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation of Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whither we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And how shall we escape? <clears throat> Sargon, referenced by the King James translation here, was completely unknown 
until the 19th century archaeological excavations. Obviously, his father was Sennacherib, but the Assyrian inscriptions have provided a nearly perfect record in every sense of the Assyrian exploits. The reference to naked and barefoot and buttocks naked. Question. Was Isaiah to go for three years naked for a sign to Egypt and Ethiopia? Historically, we need to keep in mind the Assyrian exploits and their association with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Two separate and distinct houses of Israel and four kings of Assyria, Shalmaneser, Sargon, Shennacherib, and Esarhaddon. Isaiah's instruction to go naked may not have been literal. The word is number 6174. It's all Rome. It does mean nude or partially or without possession. Could it have been an instruction to take off the prophet's mantle or upper garments, symbolically being naked? In other words, if you know your president, or you know your king, and you take away the crown, or you take away the security detail and everything which helps to identify your your president if you will your leader in this case isaiah you take away the prophet's mantle he's symbolically naked there's another question that pops up was it actually three days to represent three years on the understanding of Numbers 1434. I discount that myself clearly for this reason, because it appears to me a year for a day is always a year for a day rather than the other way around, a day for a year. So I do believe it's a literal three years, and I found myself considering why on the uh, uh, in reference to being naked or not being naked specifically when the scripture says that this is a like situation as he says in verse 4 quote even with their buttocks uncovered shall they go you see if isaiah was not literally naked or at least appeared symbolically naked to those he was sent to prophesy to, then there is this question that we just don't know. But the phrase girded in sackcloth started to provide me a little bit of a clue. Because in this case, he was instructed to loose that sackcloth from him. The prophet's mantle in this case, as it pertains to Isaiah, was the sackcloth worn because he was mourning and lamenting for Judah. 
and her condition before Yahweh. Thus, Yahweh's instruction to take it off, by taking it off, he no longer appears as mourning for Judah. Symbolically naked. In other words, God's strength, his covering, has been removed. And it appears that it was something that Yahweh wanted for Isaiah's appearance as that time of mourning and calling Judah to awaken from her impending doom was clearly over. The three years in verse 14 seems to settle the duration of time. Isaiah was required to represent the nakedness as being ready to be captured. The Assyrian annals indicate that Shalmaneser appears to have died before Samaria was taken. Josephus at Antiquities 9, 14, uh, 2, indicates also that Sargon concluded the siege on Tyre and then had his sights on the bane of Assyria, which was Samaria and Egypt who were the constant source of continued agitation of Assyrian Western Asian uh, possessions. And Herodotus also indicates that this Ashdod was a significant Philistine fortress. And the Philistines tribal connection with Egypt seems to have been at least in part why they were so often in league with Egypt. So not to neglect, Ashdod presented itself geographically necessary as well, and that's why it's being referred to here in Isaiah. And so the culminating events are probably the reason for the three-year reference and included subduing Ashdod, which by all appearances, was a major undertaking. I think one of the other um, leaders who went in on Ashdod, I think somebody said that he, I think I recall an account that, that he tried, he besieged it for a number of years. I was thinking it, it was a long period of years, like 20 years or 29 years or something like that. So thus, Isaiah's appearance exemplified the nakedness with which Ethiopia and Egypt were to be as Sargon's captives. Now, whether he was physically naked that entire time for the three years, I don't know. I really don't know because it doesn't seem exactly what God was actually conveying in the scriptures when i look at the words and i analyze the definitions and so forth so the verdict is out for me on that as to whether he did the duration of three years i believe was absolute um and i think many people uh, seem to believe that it was only three days and that he wasn't entirely naked that you know his tunic or his upper garment but I did, like I say, I found from my sense 
the idea that he was instructed to take off the um 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 the sackcloth that definitely was what somebody wore in a time of mourning so isaiah was already garbed in this sackcloth due to his whole prophet's disposition and that is seeing the signs of the times recognizing what was upon them and that's when the instruction came for him to take it off and i don't know as i say there are three definitions nude or partially or without possessions certainly partially and without any possessions barefoot you know sandals on his feet probably would have been the only possession then at that point that he would have you know he would have had with the been the sandals on his feet so you can take that for what it's worth and um it it seems like a, an extended period of time that he would have had to have, have walked this way it would have been very contrary to custom in those days um a, a a very significant um humbling a very significant um embarrassment um but you know when i understand what he asked hosea to do for the purposes and so forth i get it and i understand i just have a little bit of a misgiving that he was required to do that i'm convinced the three years stands and that makes me even more apprehensive about a literal nakedness as i say take that for what it's worth now before leaving this i wanted to express one more thing and that is the reference to ethiopia which i believe i only briefly kind of made a point of that there in last week's fellowship this english translation that i'm using uh might actually be an error or at least an error by modern designation because often kush is what's actually being translated as ethiopia in our bibles and it likely might be arabia's kush that was an ethnic tribe of people of kush of ham's descendants which we've also understood to be a, a number of the Egyptians were of Hamitic descent. And of course, Ham is Noah's son. And so the church world's desire, again, to convert the whole world rather than Yahweh's objective that by and through his plan with his people, the world would be blessed they're trying to force a conversion of african ethiopia by their application of modern designations and i think that doing so alters significantly the record and so i would caution those who study into isaiah further to have some consideration to that effect now the reason that this matters is in the context of why we're actually reading of this in the record in the first place what is all of this about so far it's about judah 
Yahweh is showing Judah that in no uncertain terms, you turn from me and trust in men, men's idols, men's statutes, and I will thrust through your trust with my weapons of destruction, and I will cut off your help. And this is the very essence of verse 5, meaning fear and terror upon Judah for her league of alliance. It was Hezekiah, king of Judah, who accepted that actual message and went into them, uh, went uh, and prayed and humbled himself before God and was uh, subsequently given a reprieve. You recall that. And it was the seceding four kings, I think, three or four kings, that the actual destruction then sub subsequently came. But Hezekiah garnered a reprieve. So, I'm ready now for chapter... Twenty-one. That was twenty. In twenty-one, let's read one to ten, and I'm going to read this from the James Moffat translation. Chapter twenty-one of Isaiah, one through ten. Uh, a desert oracle is what it's titled. Like a hurricane hurtling over the south land, there it is, driving from the desert, from the land of terror. A grim revelation, this for me, since they craftily still are crafty, since the plunderers still plunder. At them, O ye Elamites, Medians lay siege to them. Silence all their arrogance. It makes me writhe with anguish, with pangs like a woman in travail. I cannot hear for pain. I cannot see for the shock. My brain is reeling. The horror appalls me. The twilight I love is turned to shuddering. There's banqueting in Babylon with tables spread and carpets laid. Up, princes, up to arms, for this is the Eternal's word to me. Set your spirit on the watch to tell what it can see. If a cavalcade it be, horsemen riding two by two, men on asses, men on camels, let it mark them heedfully. Then my spirit called to me, here on the watch, my Lord, all through the day I stand here at my post night after night just then a cavalcade rode by with horsemen two and two and my spirit called to me babylon has fallen fallen and her idols one and all are shattered to the ground my poor crushed countrymen downtrodden folk such is my message to you from the Yahweh of hosts, from Israel's God.
end quote. That's from the Moffat. That really helped me see more in this first 10 verses here of 21 than I saw from the King James. I'll read from the King James here quick. The burden of the desert of the sea as whirlwinds in the south pass through. So it cometh from the desert, from a terrible land. A grievous vision is declared unto me. The treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O media. All the sighing thereof have I made to cease. Therefore are my loins filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold on me, as the pangs of a woman that travails. I was bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. My heart panted, fearless, affrightened me. The night of my pleasure has turned into fear unto me. Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink. Arise, you princes, and anoint the shield. For thus has Yahweh said unto me, go set a watch. Let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a couple horsemen, a chariot of asses, a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much heed. He cried, A lion, my Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights. And behold, here comes a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and the graven images of her gods has he broken to the ground. O oh, my threshing and the corn of my floor, that which I have heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. End quote. Isaiah is envisioning quite a tumultuous situation where the land of terror, as Moffat puts it, or treacherous dealer deals treacherously, or the spoiler who spoils is spoiled out of the King James. The burden is <clears throat> this time has something to do with a desert of sorts, a Southland. Herodotus explains that the entire region or plain around the city of Babylon was literally a seabed of overflow waters from the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, which were subsequently held back by dams and canals. In a sense, I found myself actually thinking about the overflowing of these waters and what you would do to subdue a lowland so that you could make it actually habitable. And that seems to be, in some respects, what exactly Babylon was. Like a fierce storm from the south, even a tornado's whirlwind is what's being reflected here. And that's what Babylon was to those around her. Just like the waters had to be subdued to inhabit it, so did Babylon plunder her neighbors to live there. It was land to the south of Judah. Verse 2 here records Elam, which is Persia, and Media. It's a recapitulation of what we read in chapter 13 of Isaiah, specifically verse 17, and of course Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 34. 
what you have <clears throat> he is saying to persia and media he's ending the sighing or excuse me he's saying to the people in the region of elam and media he's is ending the sighing of those affected and spoiled and plundered by babylon and as i was considering these records i can't help but infuse our own selves into these prophecies as we look to ourselves as being plundered and spoiled so pained is isaiah at hearing of it he buckles or bows down as in pain like a woman that's in travail and he says that he can't even hear because the pain he's literally dismayed by the burden that he sees and i and i don't think we 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 recognize this for what he's trying to convey in poetry and vision and so forth he's literally in utter disbelief and why because the watchman has been on the watch day after day night after night so long in watching preparing for the warning and yet in the night of pleasure and feasting that's being done in the in the palace of Belshazzar and the banquet that's set and the tables that Isaiah sees set that's what he's seeing he is in vision experiencing the curse of Deuteronomy 28 I'm going to turn over there because I went back to that and I'm like whoa and you know, see I I guess what I'm trying to do is to really capture you know our mind the essence of God's working in his creation Deuteronomy 28 verses 6 and 7 um did i do that right no i'm it's verse 67 i thought that it was later in the chapter it is 67 in the morning thou shalt say would god that it were even and at even thou shalt say would god that it were morning for the fear of your heart wherein you shall fear and for the sight of your eyes which you shall see think of that this is isaiah right here something god told jacob israel right here in deuteronomy about the curses that were going to be coming upon them for their disobedience and right here isaiah is so dismayed by it this verse encapsulates exactly what god foretold the fear of your heart and bear in mind what he's seeing is babylon and the fear dismays him dismays him so much that it buckles him you see what i'm trying to convey this isn't even upon judah this is what he sees upon babylon and his ears can't hear for the pain 
wherewith thou shalt fear and for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. And while the church world sees Babylon coming under judgment, Isaiah is in fear of heart for the sight that he sees. While knowing the sins of Jacob Israel. Trouble to Isaiah upon Babylon surely means that troubler Yahweh is about to trouble Judah for her sins and abandoning her duty. And historically, chapter 51 and 52 of Jeremiah is where you'll where you'll find it. Yahweh is truly no respecter of persons. He executes judgment uniformly, even while he confesses Jacob Israel is the apple of his eye. Chapter 21, 1 through 10, therefore, is recapitulation of the hope and the assurance of chapter 13 and 14. For Judah. But Isaiah yet sees judgment clearly assured. Many of us, I think, today find ourselves gripped by this same vision and pained at the prospect of national sins trickling down upon the rank and file citizen. Imagine now the enemy. The army within the gate. Listen to it again from Moffat, verses 8 to 10. Then my spirit called unto me. Here on the watch, my Lord, all through the day I stand here at my post night after night. Just then a cavalcade rode by with horsemen two by two. And my spirit called to me. Babylon has fallen, fallen, and her idols, one and all, are shattered to the ground. He doesn't even have time as the watchman to do anything but say, Babylon has fallen. It's there. It's upon him. And all the while he's there, day after day, night after night, and just like that, like a whirlwind from the south, like a tornado, it happened. Like a thief in the night, Babylon has fallen. And keep in mind, it was Daniel who said, according to the interpretation of the vision, it was Babylon, which was the head of the figure, the head of gold. When Babylon fell, 
a new world order was ushered in as the head of gold had fallen. But what it represented, Daniel clearly conveyed, was world domination at that time. Go back to Daniel and read about that vision and about that figure once again, and you will clearly see what I'm trying to convey. In eyes of today that we see this beast head of gold once again, this Babylonian head of gold trying to bring their world order back in when God had destroyed that world order and it had fallen. Remember, this is before the return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then we have a whole nother span of time before the advent of the Messiah and the destruction of Jerusalem once again. And the cry out by the revelation of Christ to John about the great whore Babylon. That world order that was being torn down again and they looked as I read from Josephus many, many, many weeks back in fellowship, maybe a couple years on the uh, year and a half or whatever on the bird's eye view of Revelation. And John conveyed that the revelation of Christ concerning this image whose head, that is Babylon, had fallen. Let me read from the Moffat, Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. And, and as I say, I do this because it, it helps me to, you know, kind of triangulate a little bit, I guess. I like to read from different translations. I, I, then, I, I, then I define the words out of the King James because Strong's is keyed to the King James. And uh, then I find that some of the other translations have actually used some of the other, some of the words of a definition. Um, in their translation, which gives you clarity. Uh, I've read from the Amplified in the past uh, quite a bit as well um, because it, it gives it in a little better English sense, if you will, um, the ESV at times. Anyhow, chapter 18, 2 of Revelation, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, a haunt of demons now, the den of all foul spirits, a cage for every foul and loathsome bird. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her vice. The kings of earth have committed vice with her. And by the wealth of her wantonness, earth's traitors have grown rich. Don't you like that clarity? A haunt of demons now. The den of all foul spirits. So if we're living in a time where we have a den of all foul spirits, a cage of every foul and loathsome bird for all nations drinking the wine of the passion of her vice 
and the kings of the earth committing vice with her and by the wealth of her wantonness earth's traders are growing rich and have grown rich we're there history repeats itself yeah history repeats itself we say it all the time and yet we don't believe that history repeats itself just you know remarkable that ah, amazing 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 so what babylon wanted the merchants of the earth provided and when you look at america today and you look at europe today which are predominantly the Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Scandinavian, Celtic, and kindred people, Celtic and kindred people. Who's on the chopping block? Who's destined for destruction? And why? Because what Babylon wants, the merchants of the earth furnish. If Babylon wants CRT in the schools, you're going to get CRT in the schools. Okay, you're raising a little bit of fuss. You're changing a few elected officials. Okay. It doesn't matter. What Babylon wants, the merchants of the earth are furnishing. Daniel's vision symbolically tells us the history of world powers. Isaiah and others provide the watchman's warning. 21.11 from Isaiah, again from Moffat, quote, very, very important, an oracle of Edom, a voice calls out of Seir to me. How far has the night gone, watchman? How far has the night gone, watchman? The watchman answers, morning comes, morning and night. Would you know more? Come back to me again. All right, you were sitting there, I don't understand that. What's all that meaning? Now, what you're seeing here is Edom also uh, let me read that from the King James. I lost my page in Isaiah, but I will get back there. Isaiah chapter 21 and verse 11 and 12 from the King James. The burden of Dumas, he calls to me out of Sierra. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman says, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire ye, return, come. What he's saying here is that when you inquire of the watchman, the watchman can only tell you what he has at the time. There is no report. So he's saying, come again. There's no report. But importantly here, 
it's an oracle on Edom as put in the Moffat, and the King James says, um, the burden of Dumas, he calls to me out of Sierra. All right. The burden of Dumas, he calleth to me from Sierra. The Smith and Goodspeed uh, translation reads this way, quote, someone is calling to me from Seir, end quote. So before we go any further in the passage here, let's unpack that small but significant phrase. Duma is a district south of Edom, but it is used here specifically of Edom. In other words, as one and the same. And Moffat conveys exactly that. Seir was the central district of Edom, which the King James Version in the Smith and Goodspeed used to identify Edom. And what does Esau Edom do? He calls out, Watchman, what do you see? What of the night? Or as if to say, in what hour shall I expect the calamity? At what hour of the night shall I expect the judgment of Yahweh? Tell me what sign you see of the judgment coming. And isn't that exactly what the Edomite Pharisees sought was a sign in John chapter 2.18? And Jesus in Matthew 24, 43 conveys that if the homeowner would have known at what hour of the watch the thief would come, he wouldn't have watched and he would not have suffered his house to be broke into. Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12 and Isaiah 6, 8 to 11. Keep warning. But they can't hear. As if by being forewarned, they'll do good for a season that the judgment might pass over them. Very significant, to me at least. Something so small, but yet so significant, that Edom wants to know what the watchman sees. What's the sign? Tell me what you see, watchman. When is it coming? How much time do I have? More importantly, how much time do they have to flee? Isn't that always what cockroaches do when you turn the lights on? They flee. And although Yahweh sets the watch, in this passage of scriptures, he tells them to set the watch. Even though Yahweh set the watch and made sure the watch was sure, the watchman has nothing to say, but check back with me later. But the watchman Christ said, watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass to stand before 
the Son of Man. That was Christ's response. And I just found it really quite revealing that, oh, you saw Edom, who have tied themselves to ancient Phariseeism by their own writings, their own words. He wants the watchman's report to escape these things. Verses 13 to 17. The burden upon Arabia in the forest of Arabia shall you lodge, O you traveling companies of Dedanim. The inhabitants of the land of Tema brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. For thus has Yahweh said unto me, within a year, according to the years of a hireling, and all the glory of Kedar shall fall, and all the residue of the number of archers, the mighty men of the children of Kedar, shall be diminished. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. Jeremiah chapter 49 is where you're going to find this reference to Duma and Edom. Ezekiel 35 chapter 2, Obadiah 1. I said Ezekiel 35, I meant 35, not chapter 2, chapter 35. Again, like I say, reading through Jeremiah 49 through 52 will help you bring some context into a lot of Isaiah's prophecies as to the historical context of what was going on at the time. And it, you know, it just... I have a Bible that I also have that it's called the Chronological Bible. And I consult that Chronological Bible sometimes because it, it does help me also in keeping it kind of in order in my mind, you know, as to what's going on when. And so that that's one of those things. So I don't have much more that I was able to do on uh, verses you know, 14 through 17, but I, I do know it's heavily referenced basically um, in Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were contemporaries, but later prophets of Isaiah. They were, you know, in the same time periods, only, you know, like, like we would say 20 years and 40 years or 30 years and 40 years. The, there's a, a C, uh, there's, you know, a, a little bit, they're contemporaries, but they're spaced out a little bit by process of time. And so that's how this all fits together with Isaiah uh, and his prophecies with Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. And that's pretty much what I had then for these two chapters and for the remaining of, of 19 that that we were on last week in part 11. So there we have it. Um, and I'm not going to go on with 22. I do have a couple of housekeeping things I want to mention to you. Um, next week is going to be um, 
a little bit difficult for me. I'm thinking I probably won't um, be able to do open fellowship. I may pre-record um, a part 13 on Isaiah if I can get it accomplished. And I just know that it's going to be a little tough uh, for me in the schedule on next week. And the following week then is the 4th of July. I know people have things they do with family and stuff like that. And so I don't want to intervene and interfere with any plans and things and gatherings that you would do. This is what we've done in America for all of our lives. And I'm sure you all will be planning to do things. So essentially, it could mean that we won't be here at this fellowship together for the next couple of weeks. And um, I do apologize. Um, and uh, as I say, I'll, I'll try to see if I can squeeze in uh, once I get notes together for a part 13, um, you know, and I'll pre-record it and I'll put it up and send an email out so that those of you that want to um we i will email and i just got a post from melissa saying can you kindly email it and i certainly will so that will be the least that i can do uh knowing that i have some conflicts there next week already so um any other thoughts or anything uh that uh you want to convey um, i think we've got a number of things to bring into prayer again this week um, so we'll be sure to have some time for some prayer here as well. Isaac, I do see that you're there as well. Just, I know you are muted out and that is fine. I just wanted to acknowledge you and, uh, let you know that I knew you were in there. And, uh, anyhow, that's all I have for this evening. So anybody, any thoughts you have or anything you want to express regarding events of the day or anything? Otherwise, we'll close it out. All right. Nobody's saying anything or offering something up. So I have a prayer specifically. And this prayer um, happens to do with our nation. And we are, Heavenly Father, in perilous times. We are in the times where when i see what appears to be a repeating of history i shudder for your people as i know the destruction that comes with judgment and you've even warned us in your scripture those that say hasten the day it is not a pretty and glorious day Father, we pray that we be found worthy, as we read Amen. just moments ago, be found worthy to be accounted worthy. And this country, Father, is, is in serious trouble. Every work that is being done is being brought to destruction. And... I can't help but believe, Father, that it's your spirit that you've sent upon your people in the lands. So, Father, we ask for your continued guidance, direction. You're working 
with your spirit in us that we will not fade in the hour that we need to be ready that we have discernment to know and to keep us with our focus on you and not be dismayed by the antichrists amongst us and father let us be beholden and emboldened to you for everything for everything that you do in our behalf because the enemy has risen higher and higher we have become the tail and they have become the head as you told us they would if we would not abide in your will and your will you told us was not grievous and father we pray for that remnant of your people that they might be held worthy father there's a submarine down in the waters of the atlantic father and a son three others we put that before you and pray that they be found so they might be able to resurface with the air that remains left in the capsule father i pray for south africa just received another article or read another article regarding south africa and what is happening there it is totally going out of control father there's no way almost insurmountable that we see for your people to be spared from those that seek nothing but their complete annihilation and i know some of them there have been trying to get out i know some of them there have been trying to move to other countries and they've been thwarted their own brethren their own kinsmen in the flesh those countries that they're seeking to go to are turning them away from their applications they're just rejecting them denying them or just not acknowledging them so father in whatever measure you have destined for those people there to protect and preserve them i i have i don't know they need you now more than ever and so i pray for them pray for them to have all the tools necessary and for your whirlwind to come across that land and show that they may once again know to fear the god of jacob israel and his people who are trying to do his will in the creation So, Father, I just don't know what else to do besides keep this brought before you in prayer and to keep sounding the warning for those that are years that have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and will take heed to the warning praying for the rest of your people father and their health everything that 
these children of the wicked ones are trying to do amongst them. Father, forgive us for having allowed them once again to amalgamate amongst us. Asking these things in the blessed holy name of your son, who you gave as an intercessor, intercessor for us, to bring these words to you in the way most fitting to your ears. Praise, glory, and honor that you are King of Kings. Amen. Amen. Good night, all. Good night, Russell. Good night, all. Thanks, everyone. We will catch up with you again. I will send an email out if 